bless you. We have been talking about in our Wednesday night lessons uh, some of the, the basics. Yeah, sometimes you just want to get rid of all of the fluff, as I call it, and all of the fancy stuff and say, let's just get down to what it really means in order uh, for us to live for God. Um, somebody once called him the America's philosopher, and there are currently more than uh, 16 million copies of his book in print in uh, 27 different languages and in 103 countries. But it all got started when one of his essays, after running the gamut, uh, that a fellow by the name of Fulgram, by the time it was over, all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten would be a number one bestseller on the lists that were going on around on the New York Times list for 43 weeks. And uh, the title, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, it seems like such a simplistic thought and a simplistic title. Uh, but most of what I really need to know, the truth is, I learned in kindergarten. I learned share everything. I learned play fair. I learned in kindergarten, don't hit people. They tried to teach us in kindergarten to put things back where we found them. Any of these sound familiar? You learned them in kindergarten. Clean up your own mess. How about that one? I wish some of our teenagers could learn that now. Sometimes my wife probably wishes that I could still learn that to this day. Uh, don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Here's a biggie. Wash your hands before you eat. How about that? And if you're still trying to learn that one, it's a real simple process. You need to know that. Uh, flush. And we'll just leave that one right there. How's that working? Uh, flush. Uh, warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. That one I have learned quite well. And I still like to live that one to the fullest. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Just enjoy yourself. Take a nap every afternoon. Now, isn't that something? Uh, somebody say amen to that one. We learned that in kindergarten. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. And lastly, be aware of the wonder that is around you, the wonder that is all around us. Remember, how many of you did the little seed that you put in a cup, you know, and the, the roots would grow down and the plant would grow up, and you were so fascinated by some of these things that we learned in kindergarten. You know, goldfish and hamsters and white mice and all of the things that were uh, in the, the room, Back in my day, they used to have these little things called readers. And how many of you remember uh, a couple uh, young people by the name of Dick and Jane? <laughs> how many remember the little dog? Anybody know his name? Spot, right? Dick, Jane, and Spot. And they ran together. And you learned to read the most simplistic of words. And eventually, you began to read that awesome, awesome word, look. The longest word in the dictionary, at least to you at that moment. You learn those things, and we learn to look, and we learned all of these things. Everything we really needed to know, the golden rule, a love for music, a respect for other people, all of those things. And regardless of whatever else we might have learned since then, these became the building blocks upon which every other piece of education Everything else we learned was built on them. They taught us how to get along in society. They taught us how to get along with one another. They taught us how to get along on our jobs. They taught us how to get along in our relationships one with another. Everything I really needed to know to be successful in life, I learned in kindergarten. So really, folks, I'm a genius. I know it all. Wouldn't that be something? I wish I could say that. And in that simplicity, though, therein lies its power. In its simplicity, 
therein lies its power. From those little truths, those little one-line aspects of my life, I have grown and I have learned and I have gone further than I ever thought I could because I learned a few basic concepts in kindergarten. And it's the same way in our walk with God, and that's why one of these um, times I want to, or several of these times, I want to take some of the thoughts that we have in our walk with God and begin to look at some of the basics uh, in our walk with God. The sermon tonight is about basics. Webster says that basic means forming the base or essence, constituting or serving as the starting point, fundamental. Basics are not complicated. Everybody say they're not complicated. They're simple. The basics are simple, and that is what makes them so powerful in our lives is because they are easily understood. They're not difficult to grasp. We learned them in kindergarten, and we still apply them in our lives today. How many of you, when you get to a four-way stop, you automatically stop and yield to the person on your right? You should if you don't. You've already learned to let other people go ahead of you. Where did you learn that? Kindergarten. One of the basic concepts that we are. And in Deuteronomy chapter number 34, it reads this way, verses 11 through 14 and then verse 19. It says, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. And verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. As individuals, as a church, we have to make choices that are important to us. And they will affect many areas of our lives. And they will affect not only our lives, but the lives of those that are all around us. And I can't control what you do. But as a person and as a pastor, I only have absolute control over what I do. So this week, I'm, I was kind of drawn some to the thought, uh, the, the words, as for me. You can read them in Joshua chapter 24 that he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I can't control what you do, and I can't dictate where your life is going to go and the absolutes that are going to be there, but I can say that for me and my house, this is what we're going to do. First Samuel said, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. As for me. In First Chronicles 28 and 2, it said, As for me, I had in my heart to build a house of the rest of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. In other words, I don't know what anybody else is going to do, but as for me, my desire is to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant, David said, to rest in. In Psalms chapter 5, but as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and thy fear will I worship toward the holy temple. You see, as for me, as for me. And so we make those choices. I can't control what you do about it. But I want to share with you tonight some of the basics of our faith and the basics of what the church rests on. And as for me, what I can tell you is this is what I know. These are some of the basics that I have learned about the Word of God and about what it means to walk with God. And so we're going to look at some of those just basic 
down-to-earth things. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, it says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Some of the things I know and some of the most basic principles in the Word of God that we must build on is that there is one body. There are not multiple bodies of Christ. There might be different houses that we gather in. There might be different groups. But we must remember tonight that there is but one body. In John chapter 17, it says that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This was Jesus' final prayer request in his prayer. It was his final request. And it was the only prayer that you and I as the church have the ability to give an answer to. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, we read all of that. But the church's greatest power lies in its unity. Jesus was concerned that we would be one body, not multiple groups that were divided and fought against one another, not multiple groups that somehow had their own agenda to the exclusion of everybody else. But his desire and his prayer was, and, and I think it's interesting to note that the last prayer Jesus ever prayed was that the church would remain one body. We are not divided. I don't care what organization you belong to. I don't care if you belong to any organization. I don't care if you claim to be independent. I don't care what name you put on uh, the sign out front. I don't care if you meet at a gymnasium in a high school. I don't care if you meet in a storefront somewhere. I don't care if you meet out under a tree because you don't even have a building to gather in. If you are part of this, this movement of the church of the New Testament, then you are a part of the body of Christ. We might have our different ideals, and we might look different, and we might act different, and we might behave different. We might do things different. Somebody thinks it's funny that we don't take up an offering every service. Others take up an offering six times in one service. I don't know. I've seen that before. We don't do that. We're different. We have our different ways of doing things. Somebody asked me one time why we take up the offering and then we come up here and we pray for it. All I can tell you is that I'm, I'm mimicking that after when the Lord collected the loaves and the fishes and he broke them and prayed for them. And so I've started that pattern in prayer. I'm not saying everybody else has to do it. You know, and I'm not saying that if you don't do it that way, you're not a part of the body. That's just what we do. We each have our own different traditions and our ways. But there is only one body. And that is the body of Christ. It is that unity. It is the power. Somebody said, well, what about prayer? Isn't that a powerful thing? Yes, but prayer by yourself will never be as powerful as unified prayer of the body of Christ. You see, it's that united front that makes us powerful. Therefore, we must understand one of the basic precepts in the word of God, the basic principle is that we understand there is but one body. Everybody say one body. one body. You see, we're in kindergarten right now. We're learning one body. We're learning we might be different. We might look different. We might act different. But there's one body. Everybody say amen. amen. All right. And we move on and say there is one spirit. You see, it says one body. And one spirit. In Corinthians, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, for by one spirit are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. There are different styles, different tastes, different abilities, 
Oh, there's all kinds of differences between us, but we have got to understand that it is one spirit that calls and binds us all together. You might go somewhere and they sing only contemporary songs. You might go somewhere and they sing only southern gospel style songs. You might go somewhere and God help us, they sing bluegrass. <clears throat> I can take one song maybe in bluegrass and that's the dueling banjos. After that, I'm done. <clears throat> My, uh, I've got an uncle that could listen to bluegrass all day long. And I, when he gets saved, he'll quit doing that. But anyway... Um, no, he was, my, he was my pastor at one time. I used to say, when you get saved, you'll quit listening to that bluegrass music. But uh, he loved bluegrass. We all have our differences. You know, but there is one spirit. It got so bad at one point in the early uh, church. Uh, actually, it was the, the, before the, the book of Acts. One time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know what? There's another group over here that's preaching in your name, but they're not a part of us. So guess what we did, Lord? You're going to be proud of us. We went over and shut them down. We went over and said, oh, no, you don't get to preach in Jesus' name. You stop that right there. You want to do that? You got to come over here and be a part of us. And, boy, they were so proud of themselves, and they expected Jesus to pat them on the back and tell them how wonderful they were. Guess what happened? It didn't go so well. Jesus said, you leave them alone. Why? because they were preaching in his name. And if that one spirit of God called them, that the same spirit that called them is the same spirit that's calling you. There is one spirit. It's not going to be different. And, and we look at one another, especially sometimes when we look at different churches and different groups and different, uh, and again, we're just organizations or whatever it might be. We look at them and we think, well, wow, we're so different. How can that be? We're different because it takes different kinds to reach different kinds of people. Amen? There, but all of that we must understand. Again, we're in kindergarten tonight. There is one spirit, one spirit that calls us all, one spirit that binds us all together. There is one spirit that fills us all, the same one. And so you might be very, very careful about slinging around condemnation and finger-pointing at people because chances are you might be finger-pointing at somebody that God has saw, seen fit to fill with the Holy Ghost, and who am I to tell God he made a mistake? You know, so be very careful. There's, there's one body and there's one spirit. And then there is one hope. We read this, uh, even, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Looking for the blessed hope, it says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, and in Hebrews chapter 6 and 9, which hope we as an anchor of the soul. In other words, no matter how bad things get here on this earth, we all have the same hope. The hope that God will deliver us and God will set us free and that we have an anchor in a very troubled world. We have the hope of trusting and believing in God. So we have one hope. I hope in the very same thing that others hope in. What is that? The power of Jesus Christ to redeem and to save and to set free. I have that hope. I can't take that away from somebody. I can't look at somebody that is struggling and I can't point a condemning finger at them and say, well, bless God, you deserve what you've got. Oh, no, there is only one hope and I need to somehow realize that they need the same hope that I've got. Does that make sense? One hope. There's not one hope for me and a, a different kind of a hope for somebody else. I don't get to hope for revival and somebody else just hope to make it through the day. It's one hope. We all hope for the same thing. We hope for the power of God to be at work in our lives. So there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, and there is one Lord. Everybody say one Lord. Paul lets us know that the Jesus we serve today is the same God who created everything that exists way back in the beginning. In Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 19, he reads, uh, 
he who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. By him were all things created. There is not an alternate Lord. There is not somewhere else somewhere. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And beside him there is none other. The Bible teaches us that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What is that name? That name is our Lord Jesus Christ. The only true Lord of the Christian church. Can you say amen? Do not be deceived. Some of these things, we have to make sure that we've got them down solid in our lives because they are what we build all the rest of our life on. There is no one else. There is not another name. I can't trust in Muhammad. I can't trust in Buddha. You can't mix and mingle all of the world's religions together. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you do not know God. Now, that's going to sound harsh to some people, but folks, that's just the way it is. Some things we just have to get down rock solid in our lives. We are not a Jesus-only church, but we are a Jesus-named church. To say Jesus-only indicate that there's a possibility there might be another. No, there is only one. We are a Jesus-named church. The Bible says that there is one throne in heaven, and there is one that sits on that throne, and his name is Jesus. So there is one Lord. We go on, it says, and there is one faith. This is where it gets dicey in our world. That's why we're back at kindergarten. We've got to learn where it all goes back to. Sometimes the Bible speaks about faith, uh, and other times it speaks about the faith. There is a difference between those two. Okay? It's not just indicating individual belief, but it talks about the entire body of belief, the entire doctrine of what the Word of God teaches when it speaks of the faith. You know, there is that moment where it encompasses all of the different tenets of our faith, all of the different aspects of what we believe. It is that faith. In Galatians 1 and 23, Paul preached that the faith which once he destroyed, he preached that faith. In 1 Timothy 1 and 2, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. In 1 Timothy 4 and 1, you can deny the faith. In other words, the, the, the whole uh, belief system, you can walk away from it. In 1 Timothy 6 and 10, you can err from the faith. In other words, false doctrine can creep in. You need to stick closely to the Word of God because there is only one true faith. Then first, uh, 2 Timothy 3 and 8, you can be reprobate concerning the faith, meaning that you could totally and absolutely lose out in your walk with God because you have turned your back and walked away and become reprobate of the faith. In other words, the group teaching of all of the things in the Word of God, it is possible. 1 Corinthians 16 and 13, stand fast in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, examine yourself whether you are in the faith. In other words, are you living by not just believing in God? You know, everybody says, well, I believe in God. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you do. You and the devil have something in common. Devil believes too. That didn't get him very far, did it? It's a whole lot more than believing, folks. You know, you've got, to, you've got to walk in the faith, the principles, the teaching, the precepts that we gain in the Word of God. These are absolute basic. Uh, these are kindergarten 101 in our walk with God. We must understand that there is only the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we are told that we should stand fast in the faith. In other words, don't be easily deceived. Hold on to it, what you know to be true. Grasp it, embrace it, make it a part of your life. 2 Corinthians 13 to 5, examine yourself whether you are even in the faith or not. Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? 
Lord, have I walked away, just didn't realize it? Have I quit believing and I just really didn't think about it? I need to every now and again re-examine myself and say, God, am I really walking based on the precepts that are outlined in the Word of God? Because you know what, folks? We can come to church. Everybody say, woohoo! Oh, come on, do it again. Woohoo! You can do that all day long. That doesn't mean that you're in the faith. Everybody say, I love you, Jesus. We can say that all day long, but you know what? Unless we mean it and we're living by the precepts in the Word of God, that's just mere words. You see, there's a difference. Am I in the faith? Am I actively allowing it to be a part of my life? Am I, am I embracing the principles that are contained in the Word of God? Check ourselves from time to time because the faith is more than just believing in Jesus. It's more than just believing in the Holy Ghost. It is believing in every word that's outlined in this Word. And so if it's in the Bible, I need to embrace it. I need to make it a part of my life. All right? It talks about being grounded in the faith and then settled in the faith and established in the faith. So there is one Lord, there's one faith, and one of them is going to be somebody's already thought about it. What's the next one? One baptism. One baptism. There's not multiple. You don't get to pick and choose. There is one baptism. And frankly, I'm going to be honest with you as we go through this. Let me remind you that it really doesn't matter what we believe. It matters what the Bible says. If I don't believe what the Bible says, then I'm wrong. That's just the bottom line of it. Didn't we learn that in kindergarten? One and one does equal two. I don't care if you think it equals four, Johnny. It doesn't. Sally, one and one equals two. And that's just the way it is. You learn that, don't we? In kindergarten, some things we just simply learn. Baptism is not an option. There is no such thing in the Bible as a Christian, if you study it, who was not baptized. You're not going to find anywhere in here where they actually proclaimed that we're living for God and we're a Christian and we're not baptized. You're not going to find it. It's not in there anywhere where they actually declared that as a truth. John 3 and 5 says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Bible says there is only one baptism. So, if there's only one right way to baptize, what is it? Important question, isn't it? If there's only one way to baptize according to Scripture, what is it? <clears throat> well, we must be immersed in water. All right? Baptism by sprinkling is a misnomer. In other words, if you say I was baptized by sprinkling, no, you weren't. You were sprinkled on. The, the, the actual word baptism literally means to be put under the water. So there is, it is an absolute physical impossibility to be baptized by sprinkling. There are different ways we must understand that. First of all, Jesus was baptized by immersion. And when, when John tried to get him not to be, Jesus said, oh, no, I must do this. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. And if Jesus himself would submit to water baptism because it was the right thing to do, then what does that say for you and I today? There is one baptism. Every baptism in the Bible you will find was done by immersion. They were literally put under the water. And because that is precisely and exactly what the word baptism means, literally to be dunked under the water and brought back out again. There is no other way scripturally, biblically, in any other rendition or any other fashion or any other form, and you will not find it anywhere in the New Testament where anybody was baptized in any other way except to be put under the water and brought forth again. 
That is why the Bible even tells us that it signifies being buried. If Brother Cobb was here, I'd get him to testify that when you bury somebody, you don't leave a leg sticking out. You don't, you don't put them in the casket and toss a handful of dirt on them and say, we just buried them. We know that, but Brother Cobb could be an official testimony to that. That's not burial. We understand that. We understand that burial is to dig a hole, put them in, and cover them up again, right? That means that they are unseen. They are literally covered. That's what burial is all about. And if baptism represents a burial to the old life, then it would only make sense, even uh, forget the rest of that we've just talked about, the fact that it, it, it typifies uh, being buried to our old life literally means that we've got to be put under. There is no other way to do it. And also, we must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody say amen. amen. The day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38, guess what? We baptize every one of you, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in the name of Peter, not in the name of Paul, not in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he said in the name of Jesus Christ. To the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 and verse 16, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. He commanded them. In other words, you must be baptized in the name of the Lord. He was very specific about that. The disciples of John in Acts chapter 19, they were rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because they had not been baptized yet in the new revelation of who Jesus was. So that tells me that if I was baptized a different way and suddenly I come to the realization of Jesus' name baptism, guess what? We can fix that. There's a lot of people that weren't baptized in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean they didn't have a walk with God. It doesn't mean they weren't trying to walk in all the light that they knew. The followers of John the Baptist were being baptized by John unto repentance, and they were doing their very best to live for God. Those were, were good people. They were commendable people trying to do their best. But the moment they realized there was another way and there was a new revelation, guess what they did? They received it, they embraced it, and they were baptized in Jesus' name. Paul's baptism, was speaking all over and over and over again, was always calling on the name of the Lord in Acts chapter 22. So there are some basics, folks, that we, we cannot, must not, we never will be able to compromise. In Galatians chapter 3 and 27, for as many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 6 and 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. In Colossians 1 and 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Jesus Name is the absolute saving name of God. And it is the only name given to us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, and every tongue would confess of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. That name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved no whereby it's possible that we could be saved no whereby we must be saved
Folks, there is no other way. Sometimes I look at this and I thought, Lord, it would be so convenient if there were other ways. It would be wonderful if we could open the door and say, come one, come all, we'll accept you just like you are. No, no, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible said there is a specific plan that we must follow. So there is one Lord, his name is Jesus. There is one faith, the group of teachings we call Christianity. And that, by the way, that's much more than what we hear in our world today. A lot of people are saying, well, we're Christian. <clears throat> no, no, you're not. And I'm getting, the older I get, the less kind I'm getting about that. I used to, you know, we're trying to hem-haw around about it, but anymore I'm getting to where, you know what, people just need to know, no, you're not. No, you're not. If you're talking about infanticide, you're not a Christian. I'm being blunt, folks. That's just the way it is. Does that make any sense? Okay, one Lord, one faith, and then one baptism. All right, this is a oneness church. There is one body and one spirit as even you are called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I'm not sure that I'm going to have a chance to get into all of this tonight. I may have to carry this over into next week, Sister Chassie. Um, I think I'll have you read that and we'll read it again. Uh, but tonight we also, as we continue on, we must also understand that there is one preeminent mission of the church, okay? It is the mission that overrides every other thing that we do. I'm going to ask Sister Chassie as we come to here to read this uh, story, almost like a folk tale, but it's so very true. Uh, the title of this story is Life Saving Station. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved, and various others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station, and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and even of different cultures, so they didn't seem to know the proper way to act after being rescued. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since those were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as the primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But after a lengthy and tense meeting, they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in the waters, they could just begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did just that. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another spin-off life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you were to visit that seacoast today, you would find a number of exclusive clubs all along the shore. 
Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Ouch. If you can clap your head, that's okay. Go ahead. Somewhere, that life-saving mission lost its focus. And their one mission, their one establishing mission became secondary to everything else. The last thing I want to talk to you about tonight, and I don't think I'm going to have enough time to finish it, is that the church has one mission. One mission. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 and 9, I'm reading in NIV right now, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes on you, and you will be witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then again in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Is it all right if I go over just a little bit tonight? I think I might be able to fit all this in if I go over just a little bit. And are you going to get up and walk out on me? <clears throat> Somebody go lock the back door. Because this is important. The church had one mission. You receive power to be witness. One mission. The one thing it said that the Holy Ghost is going to bring to you. Do you notice it didn't say you'll receive power to get to heaven? And I'm trying not to preach. But it didn't say that you're going to have power to raise the dead. It didn't say that you're going to get the power to go out and be able to claim great, wonderful, powerful things in this life. It said, but you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. There is one overriding goal and one overriding mission of the church that must forever stay in focus, and that is to reach the world with the gospel. I must always understand that, and this is where all of our lesson boils down to tonight. Let, let understand this. This is why I need a few more minutes. The narrative contained in Acts chapter 1 and 8 through Acts chapter 6 and 7, that period covers approximately a 10-year period in the early church. It contains an incredibly important lesson for the church that many people miss entirely. You see, blessing is not in and of itself, a sure sign of God's favor. In and of itself, having the blessings of God in our lives, they, in and of themselves, are not indicative of the, the power of God or the, the favor of God. It is obedience to God's word that brings that in our lives, not the other way around. During these years, Jerusalem was blessed with divine visitations. Oh, folks, there were miracles that were done. There were healings that were done. They had encountered many of them having a, a holy boldness that they had never seen before. They had numerical growth. The, the church grew in spite of the opposition to it, and it was blessed in many different ways. There were internal disputes that were there among them. There were 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2 and 41 
thousand men in Acts 4 and 4. Multitudes of men and women you find when you get to Acts 5 and 14. And even a great company of Jewish priests you find when you get to Acts chapter 6 and verse number 7. But notice something about that. It all happened inside Jerusalem. It all happened inside Jerusalem. Jerusalem might have been enjoying the blessings of the Lord, but the other 99.99999% of the world got nothing. Jerusalem might have been blessed in a very powerful way. They might have gotten all of these things, but let me ask you, what about other cultures? What about other groups? What about other individuals? Unless you were in Jerusalem, you got nothing. Unless you were within the city limits, you got nothing. The real issue here is how much blessing does the church have to receive before she is willing and ready to fulfill the great commission that was laid upon her by Jesus Christ himself when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. All right, now I might preach a little bit here, so hang with me, just please. We're in kindergarten, folks. This is, this is kindergarten 101. That overriding mission, one of the great dangers when we go from a struggling small congregation to a successful larger congregation is that we lose our cutting edge and we lose our absolute dependency on the things of God and his power because we reach a plateau if we are not careful and we begin to feel like we have attained a certain level. And although all of the apostles heard Jesus command them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, not a single one of them for a period of at least 10 years, not a single one of them ventured outside the confines of Jerusalem. Let that sink in. Not one. Not one. You see, we become self-centered. In many of our conferences and camp meetings and conventions and church services, our, our focus is mainly in our Jerusalem, isn't it? And I'm not against that. Don't get me wrong. We've still got to save our own. So I don't want you to think I'm preaching against conferences or against those things. I am not at all. But what I'm wanting us to do is to realize that there is something greater. Uh, we didn't receive power so that I can minister to the same people every week and every year and every month out of the year. That wasn't what the power necessarily was given for. We were given to be a witness to the community around us. Does that make sense? And if we aren't careful, we lose sight of that. We have to understand that we don't get a choice about the Great Commission. I don't get to say, well, I think I'm going to change it today. It doesn't work that way. I don't get to come out here and say, you know, understand this. We are stewards of the Word of God, not bosses of the Word of God. And I don't get the liberty to change that. I don't get the liberty to somehow say something different than what the Word of God says. And if the Word of God commands that I was given power and that the very next statement is that that power was given so that we would be witnesses to the world around us, then folks, I don't have any other option but to present that to you. And can I make it even more personal? You don't have any other option but to receive it. Might as well say amen because it's the word of God. And I can't change that. 
But for 10 years, oh, they, they had powerful things happening. They were glorious in what was going on. They had wonderful things happening, but it was all in Jerusalem. Nobody ventured out. They didn't even go into Samaria. They only ministered to their own kind. Their own kind. The only people they ministered to were other Jews. And in fact, the only people they ministered to were other Jews in Jerusalem. It got more exclusive than that. That was it. It never crossed anybody's mind that maybe there might be a Samaritan out there that wanted to hear the gospel. It never crossed anybody's mind that there might be somebody out there over in Greece that would like to hear the gospel. It never even crossed their mind. In fact, they were dead set against it. Why? Because, as our story goes, they were dirty. They were filthy. They were unclean. It took God literally breaking Peter's will down. You know the vision of where the sheet was let down? And it was full of all these unclean animals. And Peter said, oh, no, I know this, Lord. This is a trick question. I'm not doing that. No, 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 we can't do that. Three times until Peter finally had that moment. You know, I should have had a V8 moment. Maybe I'm showing my age now. But anyway. And Peter realized what God was trying to tell him. Peter, get out of the city. Get out of the boundaries that you've allowed yourself to build. Get outside of the boundaries that the church has created. There is a mission. There is a goal. There is something that is far greater than whether or not Johnny over here receives his fourth blessing of the week. There's somebody out there that's praying and they need to hear the gospel. Amen? And so that's what was happening. So they had to go through the trials. Thousands of Christians lose the purpose. In Acts chapter 1 and 6, it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their mentality was this is just for us. Even while Jesus was still walking this earth, they gave us a little glimpse of their mentality. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to give us exclusive rights? Powerful, isn't it? They had already, before it ever started, the modern church has embraced a faulty mentality in at least three different ways. Number one, the come to me mentality. The come to me mentality. But when you finally get done with all the junk you're doing, come to me and I'll tell you what the truth is. Come to me and I'll share with you the gospel. Come to me. And we've developed that. And when I say we, I'm not talking about justice here, but the church in general. Secondly, the spirit will do the work mentality. In other words, I don't need to go out in the highway and the hedges. I'll just pray that the Lord will stop them dead in the tracks as they're driving by and throw their body right on that back pew back there. Bless God, we serve a great God, don't we? He can do anything. Well, apparently God can do anything and we can do nothing. Because when was the last time you brought somebody to church? When was the last time I brought somebody to church? When was the last time I drug a sorry carcass in here and threw them on the back pew, as we say? Oh, we believe God can do it. But God told us to do it. 
You see, that's the mentality of the early church, and that's the mentality we sometimes have today. And the perfect, well, in other words, perfect the church first. Before we reach the world, let's just make everybody in here perfect. <clears throat> Good luck on that one. Good luck on that one. You see, but it wasn't long in the early years of the Jerusalem church, they grew in strength and power. But the honeymoon, the honeymoon was over pretty quickly. When it came to a part, it was shattered, if you will, at the martyrdom of Stephen and the intense persecution under the reign of Saul of Tarsus. And it began to oppress them. And it began to weigh heavy on them. But this is why we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they huddled in each other's houses and hid. No. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. But the believers, it took persecution. It took the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul was being used by God before he ever even knew it. Because he came into Jerusalem he brought persecution, and when that persecution shame came, everybody fled. And then when they fled, guess what they took with them? The gospel. God was going to get it spread one way or the other, and if you won't go out on your own and do it, well, bless God, I'll just come in and I'll send Saul in, and Saul will start putting you guys in jail, and after a while, maybe some of you will think, maybe we ought to leave Jerusalem. Maybe we ought to head outside the church a little bit, you know, get a, you know, go up there and do something. And that's what they were doing. And so they went out there. You see, persecution it took to drive them out of their comfort zone. It took persecution to drive them out of that place where they just felt safety and comfort. It was a great change. When I was in business many years ago, I used to go to study all these things, and they called it a paradigm shift. The paradigm is your view of things, and it took a shift in their way of seeing things. But you know what's funny? They still hadn't gone outside of the Jewish nation. They had only gone in the Jewish area. But when the Apostle Paul had his life-changing encounter with God and came to the church at Jerusalem to share his vision of preaching to the Gentiles, the brethren sent him back to Tarsus. You know why? He made them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> you're stirring the pot, Paul. You're... you're you're stirring things up, and we're just not ready for that. So we'll send you back to Tarsus. You just go back home. We'll pray for you. We'll send for you when we want you. But for right now, just, just go home. And that's what they did. That's what they did. When Peter was finally sent to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, to preach the gospel, he does so very reluctantly. Remember that? It took a lot of persuasion to get him to go outside of his comfort zone. And finally, he did so. Then we find in Acts chapter 11, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, Preaching the word, but listen to this, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. These are some stubborn people. God comes in and says, well, I'll just send you guys everywhere. And he sends them everywhere through persecution. And guess what they do? 
they run to the ends of the earth, and then the ends of the earth, they say, hey, are there any Jews here? I mean, you know, good folks. I only want the good ones, so I'm going to go out and pick a few good people. <laughs> you read it. If you don't, get it out and read it. That's exactly what they did. And they only preached to the Jews. God was trying to break them wide open for revival. He was trying to break them wide open, but they never were able to get beyond that mission of the church was to preach to the world, not just their own close-knit community, not just their own family, not just their own neighbors, but to the world. And they couldn't, they lost sight of that mission. Folks, the very basis of the, the gospel is to take it to the world, to everybody, not just a certain few, not just a certain culture, not just a certain group, not just the places where we feel comfortable even, but to anybody that will listen. But the, the early church had a very difficult time breaking out of that. They were anointed. They were blessed. They had received so many things. I would have thought that if there was any breakthrough moment that it would have happened from Jerusalem. I'm trying to bring this to a close. I would have thought that if any of the groups of people that would have had that epiphany that would launch them into revival, it would have happened at Jerusalem, right? Because that's where the center of it all seemed to be. But guess what? It was a tiny group of people in a city called Antioch that for the first time outside of Nicodemus when Peter shared with just him and his household, for the first time the church in Antioch, they spent a year establishing that church and it was Antioch, a Gentile church that sponsored the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey to the world. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't the, the traditional normal group, but it was a group on the fringes that somehow caught a vision, somehow realized that the gospel is bigger than one nation or one group of people or one city, that the gospel should be preached to the whole world. And Antioch, I think it's worthy of note, Antioch was the first place they referred to the church as being Christians. Maybe because that was the first time when people looked at them and saw their love and their outreach and their care for literally anyone, maybe that was the first time people looked at them and said, hey, I see Christ. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Antioch was the first place the church was referred to as being Christian. It also happened to be the first church to sponsor a missionary to go out into the whole world and preach the gospel. The church has one overriding mission. Oh, yes, we need our conferences. We need our Sunday school. We need all of the church. We need our Bible study on Wednesday night talking to the local church. We need our Sunday night services. We need our Sunday morning services. But we can never get comfortable in those things without realizing there is an overriding mission behind it all and that is to reach the world with the gospel new souls hungry hearts people's lives changed as wonderful as it is don't ever forget that because that is the one mission of the church what's our mission 
spread the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Everything we do must revolve around that mission. Everything we do must support that mission. How does Sunday school support it? We're training up people that as they grow in their walk with God, guess what? They're going to learn to reach out into the world. How does Wednesday night Bible study? Well, times like this, we get reminded to refocus where we need to be. How does a Sunday night service do when we just shout and dance and praise God? It reminds us that there's others that aren't there, and we want them to be a part of what we're having. It all revolves. <clears throat> Our overriding mission is to reach the world with the gospel. One mission. Amen?